Good morning, everyone. Uh, so we're going to be in Zechariah, beginning at the place where we had our scripture reading in chapter 1 there. Um, with meeting once in terms of an assembly, uh, choosing what to teach on is, is somewhat challenging. Um, but there's a lot of things that I think would be good to, to at least attempt to juggle a bit. So once a month we're looking at Ephesians, which in Ephesians it's going to be progressively very, very practical, very personal. Um, Zechariah uh, is practical, but it, it builds, I think, a conviction to act in practicality based in faith, based in seeing God's work, based in the assurance of God's promises. Um, if, if you're like me, um, oftentimes you know what's right to do, but you struggle to understand how to do it. You struggle to have the encouragement you need to do it. I think the issue is oftentimes we give too much glory to what we see, too much glory to our efforts and not enough to the work of God, too much glory to obstacles in our growth or weaknesses in ourselves and not enough glory to God's power and his promises to overcome those things. We give too much credit to our feelings and to our circumstances and we don't see clearly enough the, the indignation and the jealousy and the compassion and the love of how God sees things and uh, how God feels about things and how he feels about us. And you'll see the title of the lesson is Restoring God's Broken Image. Um, we're going to talk a little briefly about just bringing us back into the circumstances of the prophet here. Israel had been punished and scattered by God because of over 800 years of continuous rebellion. And when Jesus died on the cross, Jesus being the exact representation of God's glory, being the representation of God's image, really Jesus fully represents how sin destroys the image of God. Jesus was destroyed on the cross. His image was humiliated on the cross. And so much of our faith is learning to rebuild this broken image of sin's wreckage of God's image. So really, Zechariah is so much about rebuilding this broken image for the people and encouraging them to act and work in faith based in seeing God for who he truly is. So Zechariah and Haggai are two prophets. These, these books of the Bible are back to back. Zechariah and Haggai were two prophets in the book of Ezra that we see were sent by God to encourage the Jewish, the Jewish people to rebuild the Old Testament temple building because it had been destroyed by Babylon uh, about 70 years before they returned. So in, in Ezra chapter 5, the circumstances were the Persian government had put a stop to that work because they were worried about the threat that Jerusalem would be if it was rebuilt and reestablished nationally. But the prophets were sent to motivate the people. You don't need permission from the Persian government. You need permission from God, and you have that permission. Get to work. Uh, Zechariah chapter 8 verse 9 just one verse of emphasis on this point in Zechariah chapter 8 verse 9 the prophet exhorts them let your hands be strong that the temple might be built we talked last time as well how the church is a spiritual temple and how the Old Testament has so much value because everything we do in a New Testament context has an Old Testament parallel context that allows us to see more clearly, more vividly and tangibly, principles and lessons that can motivate us to act similarly, similarly in a more spiritually fulfilled manner. 
So just a couple more points. The, Jew, the Jews no longer had a king. So their motivation couldn't really be the same as before of needing leadership, like a king to just tell them what to do and motivate them. People like David or Solomon, those kings were gone. They no longer had a king within their government. God was now acting as their king through the prophets and through his word. And as I said before, they had been punished and scattered among the nations for their rebellion. But they're at a point where God had brought them back because these were a people who had humbled themselves. These were not just Jewish people circumcised from birth who knew nothing about God. This is a very special time in the history of Israel when the people who are within the city of Jerusalem now, they intended to be there. And they intended to be there because they were broken and contrite of heart in view of their sin. And they knew they needed mercy. It's a very special time in the history of Israel. Their territory was diminished. The temple was not as glorious looking as before. The wealth that Solomon had, they, just, they simply did not have that amount of wealth in rebuilding the temple. They no longer had any military power in the times in the past. Jerusalem and the nation or the, the rest of the nation and the territory that's around it, they were a military power and they, they were much more vulnerable than, than before. And their work was greatly opposed. When David and Solomon built the temple, it's like everything was going right. They had all the resources they needed. They had all the support they needed. God was providentially bringing different nations to give them their skill in building different components of the temple structure. But now the work is greatly opposed and they're vulnerable, which, as was said before, is a part of the reason why the work had stopped for a while. But God's promise is that he will fulfill and is proactively fulfilling all of his promises through this work that does not look glorious or motivating on its own. Lastly, just a very, very brief outline of the book of Zechariah, and I'll put this up every time we go through Zechariah. But just very simply, just some key things that I think can help us to have a sense of navigation in Zechariah. It's not just a random series of things. No book of the Bible is. And I think it's very helpful to see, um, to see structure. I think it helps understand place and draw more out. Chapters 1 through 6 and chapters 7 through 14 are distinct sections in the book of Zechariah. Chapters 1 through 6 is more focused on removing all obstacles. So there's a lot of obstacles in the work, and just like in our work here as a local church, there's a lot of obstacles in working locally together. But God is going to remove all of those obstacles. Chapters 7 through 14 is more about giving power and peace to the people. And so one section is more about taking things out that are getting in the way, and the next section is more about giving more than what's needed to accomplish the fullness of what's even way beyond the temple structure itself. And there's some parallels. So each section begins with a renewal of repentance. So we looked last week at verses 1 through 6 where God says, return to me that I may return to you. Well, chapter 7 begins, people coming from Judah asking God, do we continue to fast in remembrance of the destruction of Jerusalem? And God tells them, did I punish you for food? He says, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? He says, no, repentance is not abstaining from food. It's practicing righteousness and justice. These are the things you should be focusing on. And each um, progressive section extending out of repentance then begins giving encouragement. So chapters 1 through 6, after renewing repentance, there are eight visions 
followed by one final illustration. And in chapters 9 through 14, there are two oracles. Uh, In your translation, it may say burden. Uh, Chapter 9, it says the burden from the Lord. Chapter uh, 12 says the burden from the Lord. So it's, it's two longer sections of oracles. And that word just means very vivid prophecy. So it's looking to the future, describing these things that God was doing and that God was going to do. And it's just as vividly as possible portraying the future of the nation and the things that God was going to do for the nation in the future. So some other parallels that you see that indicate this structure. Chapter 1, verse 14, God says, I am exceedingly jealous. Chapter 8, verse 2, God says the exact same thing beginning the next section of the book. He says, I am exceedingly jealous. Chapter 6, 13, uh, finishes the first section with an emphasis that the branch, which we know to be Christ, will be a priest on his throne. So it emphasizes this new dominion that would come to the nation. Chapter 14, verse 9, concludes the entire book in the second section, the Lord will be king over all. So again, it emphasizes this new dominion, this greater dominion that's going to come through all of these things. So let's go to Zechariah chapter 1 now. Um, again, just, I think these things are helpful because they just help to give us a sense of perspective, I think, to pull more out and to feel more familiar and less, less lost uh, and directionless as we're reading through this. But we're going to start with verses uh, 7 through 12, chapter 1, verses 7 through 12, and we'll consider these first points after we read this first section, verses 7 through 12. And this first section with removing obstacles, we're going to be looking at the first two visions here and the relation is God is going to remove the obstacles of their circumstances. Chapter 1, 7 through 12. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shebat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, as follows. I saw at night, and behold, a man was riding on a red horse, and he was standing among the myrtle trees which were in the ravine, with red, sorrel, and white horses behind him. And I said, My Lord, what are these? The angel who is speaking with me said, said to me, We'll show you what these are. And the man who is standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord who is standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, with which you have been indignant these seventy years? So this, this vision is almost like a reflection, right? So it's a reflection on, on the return of the people and God's response to the people being scattered among the nations. And it's, it's a very interesting vision. It's important that we actually see the scene. Again, these, these are visions that serve as illustrations or almost like parables of greater lessons. So it's important that we see what's going on. These are immersive visions. So we'll see frequently Zechariah is interacting with what's happening. So you'll see here that he sees in a ravine, so there would have been maybe canyon walls on both sides. There's some myrtle trees, some lush trees that are there. And he sees these four distinct horses in the ravine, and he asks the angel, who is almost like the guide of the visions, he asks the angel, what are these? And his answer is very simple. These are uh, those that God sent to patrol the earth. And what they had found is the earth is peaceful and quiet. And you would think, well, that sounds... That sounds great. Isn't it good for the earth to be peaceful and quiet? And I think the answer you see is the angel doesn't think so. He hears that it's peaceful and quiet. He says, God, how long will you have no compassion on the situation with your people? 
We need to understand. This is a part of the beauty of immersing ourselves within the heritage of the Old Testament. You read this at first and you think, what's the problem? But the more immersed we are in the heritage of God, the more we understand. Jerusalem was ravished. The city of Jerusalem fell in the most humiliating, degrading, torturous way. Every nation that could participate was camped with the Babylonians outside the gates of Jerusalem. In Jeremiah, when Jeremiah the prophet who lived through the destruction of Jerusalem, Jeremiah records all of the nations gathered with Babylon to destroy Jerusalem. Jeremiah reflects in the book of Lamentations on unthinkable, horrendous things that happened not only within the city, among the people, but to the people by the Babylonians. He mentions that even in the temple of God, blood was flowing among the people who thought they could flee for safety within the temple, but they were murdered within it. Not only was Jerusalem destroyed, but when we reflect on the destruction of Jerusalem in a book like Lamentations, it is a parallel to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And is it good that those who crucified Jesus just get to live the rest of their lives in peace without being confronted by the injustice of what they had done? No, it's not good that they would have peace having done something so heinous against the Son of God. The nations, despite Israel being punished for their sins, the nations were very glad that Jerusalem was no longer a nation. It was better this way for them. And consider current events. I I preached some time ago on the events that transpired in Minneapolis, Minnesota, the cries for justice. We should understand this really well right now. If there is a heinous act of injustice, let's say consistent acts of injustice targeted against one specific group of people, is it good that those who commit that injustice just get away free? I think current events help us to appreciate God needed to respond to this. And the angel of the Lord, the principle we need to see is it can be hard to see God beyond our condition and our struggles. It can be difficult. Even the angel of the Lord who had existed throughout creation and had seen everything God had done play out up to this point, he looked to God and said, how can it be this way? How can you have no compassion? That is bold to ask God how he of all could have no compassion. But this only magnifies how powerful the next scene is. Verse 13 is so moving. The Lord answered the angel who is speaking me with gracious words, comforting words. just want you to, to see this like Zechariah did. He doesn't say yet what God said. But you imagine he hears the indignation in this angel's voice. And he's looking at God. Maybe he's saying what he can't hear from a distance potentially. But he can see that these words are soothing. And how this would just build anticipation What did he say? Let's read. Verse 14. The angel who is speaking with me said, and just hear the excitement, proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. I am very angry with the nations who are at ease. For while I was only a little angry, he's talking about his anger against his own nation, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. 
My house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. Again, proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, My cities will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and truce Jerusalem. The principle here is God's jealousy is extremely encouraging, and it is vital to our faith. God finds us in a vulnerable condition. We'll see what the final vision we'll consider this morning, that what God is looking for is not for us to present ourselves to him in our own strength or as if we are notorious by merit sufficient of ourselves, but God is able to find us in our brokenness. And because of these circumstances, it can just be very difficult to understand, does God care? Is God able to change things? Is he willing to change anything? And the people knew that they had been punished for their sins. They deserved what came upon them. But God was jealous for them. God was seeking to establish them. God was seeking to build and no longer destroy. Enough was enough, and now God is seeking to fulfill every promise that he had ever made. He would again choose Jerusalem, and all of his promises would be fulfilled not through their strength, but through the weakness and the littleness of what was being done by faith. Something important to understand, your condition is not the obstacle. Since I've moved to Savannah, I've heard, I've heard things um, that I think are very easy to think. Things about the church here. You know, how can a church like this have elders? We've never had elders. This church has been meeting here for quite a long time, decades, never had elders. Can the church here have unity? Can the church here have maturity? And I've heard people reflect on their own condition. It's impossible for me to change, even when there is an earnest desire to change. That I'm too far away. I'm too weak. My struggles are too great. Our condition is never the obstacle. The issue is where we are not seeing clearly enough. We're blind to God's compassion and his zeal to work with us, especially in our brokenness especially in our brokenness. When Israel was strong with kings and military power and influence and money, and they could influence the nations around them, oftentimes they were actually in their weakest condition, and God would bring them down. And finally, while they're at their weakest, now they're finally at their strongest, because now they can finally value God's love and power in his compassion toward them. 18 through 21. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and this is the second vision, and behold, there were four horns. So I said to the angel who is speaking with me, what are these? And he answered me, these are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen, and I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns which have scattered Judah, so that no man lifts up his head. But these craftsmen have come to terrify them, to throw down the horns of the nations who have lifted up their horns against the land of Judah in order to scatter it. So what's the point of this and what's even going on? It's very strange. A lot of these visions, by the way, are very strange and they're captivating in that way. You have these four horns and what's told about the horns is they're the powerful nations. You can even think about them as just the powers that overcame and scattered Judah and Jerusalem and the people of God. The blacksmiths are just those who are coming to throw them down and to terrify them. And that's, that's their craft. You think if for a, a blacksmith does a horn, a lifeless horn, metal horn, the horn of an animal, what is a horn to a blacksmith? It's, it's a tool. 
It can be attached to things and repurposed. That, that's all it is. It's, it's, it's a tool by nature of craft. So these things that seem so powerful to God, it's nothing. It's, it's just a tool for his use that he can repurpose and use whatever way he wants to. Remember the cross. God repurposed what the cross was and he used it as a tool for his purpose to glorify his people. The cross fulfills the purpose and illustration of the vision here. The problem is not that we are too powerless or that Satan is too powerful. It's not that we're too immersed in our sin or in our way of thinking apart from God that there's no recovery. The problem is we're blind to God's power to deliver us and help us to overcome. Satan is not more powerful than God. And Paul the Apostle in the New Testament writings would communicate those truths when he would say that these temporary light afflictions are working for us to produce an exceedingly superior weight of glory far beyond all comparison. What Jesus revealed to the world is death and suffering are actually a vital tool for God's use to glorify his people, not destroy them. And so we need to see that God is able to use the powers that be whichever way he determines to. And at this point, the time of punishment was over. Babylon was not stronger than God's purpose. And neither was Persia, neither was Greece, and neither was Rome. And Daniel saw a vision when he was in the nation of Babylon at the time when the nation was not yet come back to Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar saw this statue of, of gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay representing these four great world powers that were going to precede one another. And this little pebble was broken off of this mountain and it just fell on the feet of that, that statue. And the entire statue collapsed. And that pebble became a mountain that consumed the earth. Where is Babylon or Persia, Greece or Rome? Where are those nations? And what has happened with God's nation? What's happened with his kingdom? It's grown into that mountain. Something that's important to understand about these visions, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, it says that you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, to the blazing fire and whirlwind and tempest, but you have come to Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. These illustrations of glorified Jerusalem are illustrations of the kingdom of God. These are not just things that are ahead of us as well. These are things that are now behind us. The things that Zechariah was pointing forward to are things that have already been fulfilled for us. We need to see the glorified condition of what God has accomplished in his son. And we need to focus more on the glory of those things and less of what by appearance seems to lack that glory. Let's look at chapter 2. The next thing is the obstacle of oppression. So he says he can repurpose the nations and their powers however he wills, that those things are nothing to God, just as a horn is just a tool for a blacksmith, that God would fulfill his promises. So let's look at chapter 2 and start in verses 1 through 5. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see how wide it is and how long it is. Behold, the angel who is speaking with me was going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him and said to him, Run, speak to that young man, saying, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. For I, declares the Lord, 
will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. The people had been very demotivated from building the temple in the past. Very demotivated. But in just that section of the scripture, does it sound like God is demotivated about the circumstances? And notice the urgency and the excitement of what's happening here. I imagine in the scene, Zechariah is standing there and he sees these angels going back and forth and he's got to stop them and say, hey, what's going on? He's like, oh, I'm, I'm going to measure Jerusalem. And then there's another angel coming and he says, run, tell that man what's happening here. There was urgency and excitement about the work that was happening, work that could not be seen. And the work that God was doing in an unseen manner eclipsed the littleness of the work that the people were doing with their own physical hands. So maybe to illustrate this, at UPS, when when I was working there, UPS was a very urgent job. We needed people to work very fast. As you can imagine, some people would come into that environment and they would be moving very slowly. And they would misunderstand the nature of the job and what we were expecting. And it was my job as a supervisor in management to have the zeal for the work that could contagiously help them to be pulled into the kind of passion that we were expecting with that job and that work, even what was appropriately necessary even to complete the work. When somebody's not diligent in the work of God, it really shows that they're not exposing themselves to God. Diligence is not a strange thing. Romans 12:11 says, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. 2 Peter 1:5 says, applying all diligence. Hebrews again and again says, let us be diligent. Revelation chapter 3, to the church of the Laodiceans who were neither hot nor cold, he said, be zealous and repent. When we're not zealous, it shows that we are not exposing ourselves to God. Now, we don't see him. You imagine on anything that you're passionate about or involved in, if you are exposing yourself to somebody who is extremely passionate, it's inevitable that it rubs off on you. So if this doesn't matter to you, if the work of God can't inspire you, the problem is just that you're not inspired. It's that you, do, you are not exposing yourself to God. And then they're measuring Jerusalem. Why was that important? Why does that matter? God knows everything. So, I mean, just off the top of his head, I'm sure he could rattle off the precise measurements of everything, right? So why, why should it be seen this way? I'm sure most of you have heard the uh, motto, measure twice, cut once, right? And somebody does that when they're taking great care with what they're crafting. It shows that God is being to the uttermost careful and precise in this work. God measures his work. God is precise with his work. God sees all of the needs. He anticipates all of the obstacles. He sees into the heart. He sees beyond our circumstances. God knows the circumstances that the Jews are in. He knows the troubles, the potential troubles. But has God not measured this local church? You think God knows exactly who's here, what the needs are here, the needs for leadership, the needs for service, the needs for growth. God has measured this church. And if God was excited about these things, which were before Christ brought glory into the fullness of these things, we can expect that God is even more zealously working in these ways. And do you think he said that God will be a wall of fire around Jerusalem? God is a wall of fire around his people. 
And our bodies are a temple in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. God measures our personal struggles. God measures our personal needs of faith, our lack of faith, our condition. These people were not in a good condition. The temple was unfinished. They were coming back from constant rebellion against God. But God had measured things. He knew their needs, and they just needed to watch, see, and trust. 6 through 13. Ho there, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have dispersed you as the four winds of of the heavens, declares the Lord. Ho, Zion, escape, you who are living with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after glory he has sent me against the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For behold, I will wave my hand over them so that they will be plunder for their slaves. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The Lord will possess Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. So another thing with management and leadership. It's more important that leadership not be disturbed by an obstacle than the people who are under them. God is over the people. And you notice he's completely undisturbed. He says, the obstacle of Persia, the nations, one day that's, going to be, that's just going to be plunder for your slaves. God is undisturbed. He who touches you touches the apple of his eye. That's the pupil. I get like a placebo pain, like a pressure in my eye. It's even happening right now. When I even think about something touching my eye. I don't know if you guys have ever been like walking in a wooded area and then like a twig just... You know, and, and like you can't ignore something like that, right? Or like a bug flies into your eye and you blink. You, you can't ignore it. The principle is we need to see the glory of God's presence in our lives. This is a common promise in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1. It would say of Jesus, his name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew ends in chapter 28. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Colossians chapter 1 the mystery of the riches which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, or the riches of the mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is a common theme in the Old Testament that's meant to stir up action, that God's presence is within the lives of his people. And if somebody attacks the people of God, they're attacking God himself. You imagine kids on a playground. If the principal is standing beside the kid who's been getting bullied every day, things are probably going to change. We have to recognize and learn to see the glory of God dwelling with us and how much it matters that God is so intimately acquainted with us and stands with us. And you have to think God's protectiveness, his jealousy. The church is the fulfillment of thousands of years of sacrifice that God has made. Souls he's lost in the fires of hell in working towards the goal of the church. He's taken risks in sending Jesus to the cross. There's work that God has done. There's anticipation that God has had. We're standing on the shoulders of these promises. And so to think that God doesn't care about our burdens, to think that God is distant from our struggles and our weaknesses, is again to be blind to the zealous compassion of God. In verse 13, this is an Exodus statement. 
when Moses told the people, be quiet and watch while God delivers you today, and he parted the Red Sea. It's kind of like when in a baseball game, somebody that you know has a reputation for home runs. The team is behind and he stands up to the plate and everybody's quiet. What's about to happen? God is about to hit the home run. He's about to win the victory. He says, just be quiet, watch what's about to happen. Yes, they're doing work, but that work is not to be so overemphasized that they think they're the ones who are cultivating the end result of glory, right? Chapter 3. Uh, this is my favorite illustration, vision of the entire book, verses 1 through 5. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. Joshua was the leader, the leader of holiness among God's people, the high priest. If there was anybody who should be holy, who should be a leader in the principles of holy living and righteousness, this is the guy. And he's standing before the Lord, filthy garments. I can remember a time when I was inappropriately dressed for an occasion. Uh, when I was in Alabama, I went to like a dinner auction and I was wearing basketball, sh- basketball shorts and a running shirt. Um, and I can't remember why. I can't remember if I just forgot what was going on. Uh, anyway, I was wearing basketball shorts and a running shirt. And uh, when I got there, I didn't realize how formal the event was. Everybody was wearing like a three-piece suit, you know, and dresses. And like nobody was making an issue out about how I was dressed, but I felt extremely out of place and really awkward and it was bothering me the whole time, right? And every time I've seen pictures or video footage or even movie scenes of very serious court cases, it is a very respectful and somber environment. And people are dressed very nicely. Um, It's all taken very, very seriously. So just imagine Joshua here, this person who's supposed to be the leader of holiness, is standing there in a, in a scene that's like a courtroom. This couldn't be any more humiliating or embarrassing. And filthy garments, it doesn't really fully convey the, the, the word, the, the Hebrew word. It literally means the kind of filth that comes out of the body. So you think about things like vomit just defiling his garments, how disgusting he looks, and, and worse still, Satan is just standing there rattling off one thing after another that he can accuse him of. And I don't doubt he's completely telling the truth. And can you imagine how Joshua looked in this scene as he knows that Satan's just telling the truth and here I am in my disgusting apparel and who is God? He is holy, holy, holy. So this, this should be game over. Throw him away. You just imagine how much it matters then to hear how God views Joshua. A brand plucked from the fire is like a stick that's been almost completely consumed. Maybe imagine like a precious, valuable painting, one of your most precious possessions. And in a house fire, it's it's fallen into the fire, it's been singed and burned and almost ruined. 
and you pull it out and, and you can really only see remnants of what it is and you remember how this should look. You know, and Eva has shown me on YouTube this guy who restores old and beautiful paintings and he does an amazing job. Um, and sometimes those paintings are nearly unrecognizable at their beginning. And you imagine somebody still who's coming out of a circumstance where they've been kidnapped. And what happens sometimes is people who are kidnapped are being reintegrated back into normal living and they need help badly. You imagine adopting an older child who's not used to the behaviors and expectations of a properly ordered environment. How hard that's going to be, but how necessary it is. You know, God views Joshua not as a sinner to throw away, but somebody who's been rescued from captivity. Somebody whose life has been so burned by the consequences of sin. To accuse him is not appropriate. This is a person that God sees needs help and compassion. This should encourage us deeply. To see on the board, we see ourselves too much like Satan does. We're very familiar with the voice of our own conscience. We know our weaknesses. We know our shortcomings. We look at other people too much like Satan does, ready to accuse, ready to see fault. We just don't see ourselves enough like God does. This should deeply impact us and draw us close to God. You know, Jesus, when he would talk to people who didn't see the filth of their condition, he would speak to them to try to get them to understand so that they could receive compassion. To those who understood the filth of their compassion, he would emphasize the compassion of God so that they could see and be drawn to God who offers mercy. And Zechariah, you can see how this excited him in saying, put a turban on his head, fully clothing him in the garments fitting for a high priest for service. Verses 6 through 10. And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house and also have charge of my courts, and I will grant you free access among these who are standing here. Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed they are men who are a symbol. For behold, I am going to bring in my servant the branch. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. First thing really quickly with verse 6 and 7. The value of obedience is held within the value of God's grace and promises. You know, there's, there's like this pendulum swing. When, when I think about grace, I can easily end up throwing away obedience and misunderstanding the nature of grace and then I can easily overemphasize obedience to the point where grace is no longer grace, whereas God's grace exalts obedience and obedience exalts his grace. There's no contradiction. Again, it's like somebody who's put themselves in the condition of Joshua and God is saying, now that we're out of that condition, let's not go back. And here is the way to live holy. Cling to it. Don't take it for granted. Jesus would even say in John chapter 5 to a man he healed of being paralyzed. He found him and said, now, don't sin again so that nothing worse happens to you. How could he say that? <laughs> because he's trying to get him to understand that freedom and liberty, there's an expectation. And it's not that we're trying to serve God by the merit of works, but that we are trying to understand where God has taken us from so that we don't return back to the depravity of that condition apart from God. We'll look at Romans chapter 8, 28 through 34 as the invitation 
But to stress that last point, the invitation for people to come and sit under his vine and fig tree and the coming of the branch, these are things that have been fulfilled and every truth of these visions is heightened, exalted, magnified, completed, beyond what these visions can portray. We need to see the fulfillment in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, go back and see the tangible vision, return back to see it more clearly, and we're just going back and forth in our understanding of God having a clearer and clearer grasp on what we've received. Turn to Romans chapter 8, verse uh, 28 through 34. Because when we personally understand our need for deliverance, as Paul said in Romans chapter 7, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? When we understand our need for mercy, we can then value that mercy to extend it to others and invite others to receive what we ourselves understand we did not deserve. Romans chapter 8, 28 through 34. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are, co- who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his sons, that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. God is not our accuser. And I worry that too often I see God as my accuser. That when I read his word, when I see his commandments, I'm seeing accusation, accusation, accusation. And what I need is to go back to the foundation and see God is not accusing. God is working to justify. These things should draw us so intimately close to God because in our justification, these things are so gloriously magnified. So the invitation is this. For Joshua, nothing mattered more in that moment than getting a change of garments. Nothing mattered more. And the problem of the deceptions of this life is we think everything matters except God's call. We'll get to it eventually. God is trying to get us to that same place where we get to a place where nothing matters more to us than the mercy of God. And if we can just start there, we can build. But we have to start there. Nothing should matter more to us than the mercy of God. And if that's what we're seeking, Galatians chapter 3 says, those who are baptized into Christ have clothed themselves with Christ. We are not clothed with just physically white garments. We are clothed in the glory of Christ himself when we choose to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of our sins to receive those gifts. If there's anything we can do for you this morning, please bring it forward while we stand and sing.